I want to say what a great joy it is to be with you and to experience such a vibrant and gifted congregation engaged in so many uh, ministries that take the reality of what you do in this building out beyond the walls and serve the larger community. I'm proud to be with you, and uh, you are yet another confirmation of the gift of the Episcopal Church and this tradition uh, which shapes and forms and sustains us. The parable, the two men, the Pharisee, the tax collector. The Pharisees' actions are appropriate. In and of themselves, they are good, his fasting, his, his tithing, and all the rest. But the real problem is everything is self-referential. He is the only one who matters. He is the reality. And so as he does good or does anything, it's uh, how does it redound to his own praise? How does it build up his own sense of himself? I don't know much about the Pharisee, but I would say this is an affliction, not a gift. And he also further reinforces his own singularity and self-importance by determining a group of, shall I say, losers. Sound familiar? In any event, the losers are variously described. And the loser of all losers is this tax collector standing far off. Now, you have to understand that tax collectors were Jews who were collaborating with Roman occupation. They were carrying out the dirty work of the Roman occupiers by collecting taxes from their own fellow Jews. So they were despised, despised. They were on the edge. So this tax collector standing there, unlike the Pharisee, probably had no self-regard whatsoever. He was probably consumed by shame. I'm sure he tried to justify what he was doing and saying, well, the taxes in some way benefit my people. Can't they understand that? Uh, don't they understand that I need to do this for my family's sake? I'm sure there were all sorts of rationalizations. But nonetheless, it was a shameful occupation. And as he walked down the street, people would turn away from him or, or mutter things as he passed. And yet, he is not imprisoned in this sense of shame. He isn't saying, I am absolutely cut off even from my God. He says, have mercy. His, his saving action is to open even his low self-regard to God's mercy. And so I think in a curious way, uh, I certainly speak for myself, I can be both the Pharisee and I also can be the tax collector. And either way, one is called to be open to God's mystery, God's love, God's compassion, and God's forgiveness. Now the Pharisee, I want to stay with the Pharisee a bit because you are a church dedicated to St. Paul. And St. Paul, you may remember, was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were very righteous people. They were more progressive than the, 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 um, 
the scribes and uh, 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 Sadducees. So I think we would want to be in the, the Pharisaical camp. Uh, their theology was a little more liberal and progressive, and uh, uh, they, by and large, were more open to difference than the others. In any event, um, Paul was a Pharisee, and he tells us in the letter of Galatians that he outstripped his contemporaries in adherence to the traditions of the elders and the law. Why? Paul tells us later on, but I'm sure it was a, something that existed from early years, that he was afflicted by a thorn in the flesh, which was a source of shame, embarrassment, and continuing awareness of his own imperfection. And I have no doubt that the super piety that exceeded that of his contemporaries, as he tells us, had something to do with the shame caused by this thorn. He needed to construct a piety, a persona, you might say, of righteousness in order to offset this deep-seated sense of his own imperfection. So then into his world uh, erupts this heresy within Judaism that is focused on Jesus. And he, in some way, is threatened by the existence of this heresy. And so he is present at the stoning of Stephen, one of the first witnesses, the first, the first martyr. Uh, and Paul, though he doesn't throw the stones, is keeping the jackets of those who are throwing the stones. He's, he's collaborating uh, in some way in this act of violence. And of course, if you read the Acts of the Apostles, Stephen is described as having the face of an angel when he spoke. His, his, his words were so convicting and convincing that those who heard them screamed and ground their teeth and, and then began to throw the stones. And I think Paul must have taken some of this in, this, this Jesus who seemed to be uh, uh, integral to the life of this, this man named Stephen who was being stoned. And then Paul is described as participating in a renewal of uh, uh, persecution of Christians. He has letters from the chief priests to go to Damascus and arrest more Christians and do them in. And I think, I think at the uh, subliminal level, Something had broken loose in Paul, and the danger, the danger of this heresy within Judaism was now a personal danger. It wasn't simply abstract. So there he is en route to Damascus to do in more Christians and is flattened on the road, and hears a voice from heaven, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who is it? It's Jesus, and you are persecuting me, I will tell you what you must do. So Paul is blinded, led into the city, and nothing is said about how long this state of blindness is going to last. It lasts three days, but for him it must have been an eternity from the beginning. When is this going to be over? What is this all about? His life as he'd known it is completely crashed and burned. His piety is completely overturned by this encounter on the road to Damascus. And there he is, vulnerable, uh, waiting, waiting for what? And then, and I think this is so interesting, 
uh, and it goes back to something I was saying in the adult class. Um, Jesus appears to a disciple named Ananias and says, you are to go and speak on my behalf. You are to go to Paul and say, Jesus has sent me. And Ananias quite understandably says, you must be crazy. We all know this man is a persecutor and he does in people like me and you're expecting me to go to him and say, Jesus has sent me? And Jesus says, yes. So Ananias, I'm sure in fear and trembling, goes off and finds Paul blind and dependent and I'm sure stuttering, puts his hands on Paul's head and says, Brother Saul, Jesus has sent me. And with that, the scales fall from his eyes and Paul now sees again and now sort of rejoins the human community and this liberation has occurred through the agency of another human being. I think it's so interesting that Jesus who spoke on the road to Damascus and flattened him by a voice from heaven, in this instance, speaks through a human voice. And how often in our lives, human agency becomes the way in which uh, God addresses us. So, uh, for Paul, when he talks in his letters about death and resurrection, dying and rising in union with Christ, I think he's not indulging in hyperbole. He's talking about his own interior experience. His old life is completely over. And when anyone is in Christ, the old is over, the new has begun. Anyone is in Christ, there is new creation, Paul says. And so these extravagant terms of what it means to be encountered with Christ really correspond to what happened within him. And so now he rises, and instead of a self-constructed piety, he says, um, grace, grace is the way one lives. It's not by what one does, it's by one's active adherence and companionship with the risen Christ. So it could end there. But isn't it interesting, the thorn is still there. And in the second letter to the Corinthians, after an extravagantly successful uh, life as a, uh, an apostle, trusted by the rest of the apostolic community, uh, Paul prays that this thorn will be removed. My sense is, yes, he's filled with new life, a new sense of being and purpose and all the rest of it, the old is over, but there's still this shame, this shame, this, this thorn. And I'm very glad we don't know what it is. We can always read into the story our own thorns. So, what happens? He prays, and the risen Christ says, the thorn stays. My grace is all you need. My power comes to full realization, not when you are fully in charge and self-congratulating, but when you are weak and available to my grace and mercy. And so the deeper conversion for Paul, I think, is at that point where he accepts the thorn as part of his own reality and doesn't obsess, but allows the risen Christ to incorporate it in whatever way the risen Christ and the wildly imaginative Holy Spirit might have in mind for whatever purpose God has in the future. And so uh, Paul then can sing Alleluia, I think, more fully. 
And at one point, uh, in one of his letters, he says, you know, I was a persecutor. I did all these awful things. Nevertheless, by the grace of God, I am what I am. A sense of his past with his imperfection, the thorn, all being incorporated into his life as a disciple and accept the fact that God could use even the things that drive us crazy about ourselves uh, as part of how we are to be bearers of his word and revealers of his truth. And I was thinking here of um, Karen Horne, uh, who was a pioneer in uh, psychoanalytic theory. And she said, the human person is three-dimensional. We are an actual self, the sum total of our life, whatever's happened to us, the, the wounds we carry with us, the dysfunctional family we came from, or whatever it is. And then we offset our actual self with a idealized self. We sort of create who we would like to be that is counter to some of the embarrassment, the shame, the imperfection that is written into our own life. And then she said, then there is the third dimension, which is the real self, which is gift. We can't construct it. It sort of breaks free at some point. Often when things fall apart and we are no longer in charge, something opens us to a larger truth, and we discover that we are not our own construction, that we are a beloved child of God, and uh, get on with our life and are able to embrace even those things about ourselves that seem problematic. I think here, having mentioned Karen Horne, uh, Carl Jung saying that I feed the hungry, that I forgive an insult, that I love my enemy in the name of Christ, all these are undoubtedly great virtues. What I do under the least of my brethren, that I do under Christ. But what if I should discover that the least among them all, the poorest of all beggars, the most impudent of all offenders, the very enemy himself, that these are within me, that I myself stand in need of the alms of my own kindness, the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. Uh, so extending to ourselves the alms of our own kindness is what grace does to us as it moves deeply within us. And I think that's what Paul's ultimate experience was, to be able to accept himself with the alms of his own kindness, namely the very kindness of Christ who accepts us as we are and says, you are what you are and you're beloved and now be my gospel in flesh and blood. The same, the same struggle though, to sort of make room for this truth, I think, uh, probably had to be faced by the, the tax collector. He could have stayed immured in his, in his shame, blamed himself, uh, created a wall around himself, but he opened himself to God's mercy, and that was his liberation. I was thinking here, too, of uh, the poet George Herbert, uh, the 16th century, 17th century uh, priest poet in England, uh, who came from a noble family and had all sorts of opportunities to rise in the life of Cambridge University as public orator, noticed by the king. Uh, a glorious court-related future lay ahead for him. Yet, as Isaac Walton in his biography of, of Herbert says, when the king died, so did Mr. 
Herbert's court hopes. He then becomes a parish priest in a small village outside of Salisbury called Bemerton, and there he wrote a collection of poems, the last of which is called Love Three, and it's all about Christ approaching the poet who is consumed by his own self-judgment. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling to reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame, there it is, shame, let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat, so I did sit and eat. Notice that the poet, approached by the insistent, deathless love of the risen Christ, invokes guilt, sin, unworth, shame, and the unrelenting Christ keeps on. I love you, I love you, pushes these things away, and then finally backed into a corner, the, the poet says, my dear, then I will serve. Okay, if I can do something that I consider righteous in my own eyes, then I can say, all right, I've done that, now I'm worthy of your love. But Christ will have none of it. Sit down, shut up, and taste <laughs> my meat, so I did sit and eat. Now, I think this is about the Eucharist. It's about eating. And I think every time we come to communion, the risen Christ is saying to us, in whatever state we are, come sit down and taste my meat. Taste my mercy, taste my forgiveness, taste my love, and allow these things then to be part of you and live them out in your life in all aspects. And uh, I think it's very good for us to think of uh, the Eucharist more intensely than we do. We, we, I mean, if, if you're anything like me, I can go to the Eucharist almost mindlessly. And it's so much a part of our lives now that uh, at the drop of a hat, someone will say, well, let's have a Eucharist. Uh, and so I think it's very important to think sometimes about this is the risen Christ meeting each one of us in the depths of who we are with a secret key opening the soul's most subtle rooms, as I said, the adult class quoting from another of Herbert's poems, drawing us out of any self-judgment, drawing us out of any sort of uh, grandiosity into a more intimate and uh, authentic relationship with Christ. When God forgives our sins, God is not changing God's mind about us. God is changing our mind about God. God is always loving, God is love. So God isn't forgiving our sins because God is changing God's mind about us, it's to change our mind about God. I think we're so, so, what would I say, unable to accept the profligate, unbounded, unmerited love of God in Christ, poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, 
Uh, that seems so distant from us sometimes. And so I think the, the uh, tax collector is my friend. The tax collector is the one I want to claim here. I will confess I've been a Pharisee at times. Things like I deliberately plan some wonderful righteous action that will benefit someone else. And I sort of imagine how grateful they will be when I do whatever it is I'm going to do. And I go and, of course, uh, to God be the glory, but nonetheless, here I give you this thing or I extend this, this act of generosity to you. And uh, they may say thank you, but I think, wait a minute now. I mean, I expect more than that. And then I sort of think, well, was it worth even doing? Well, that's the Pharisee. Because you see, what I was looking for was uh, self-aggrandizement. It wasn't genuine and self-forgetful. So when there's a slight bitterness, as there was when I gave a pectoral cross to a seemingly ungrateful bishop not too long ago, I thought, Frank Griswold, what, what's going on here? Was this a genuine act? Or was this something you were waiting to have further fulfill your self-regard? So the Pharisee plays the Pharisee's role in our lives in, in far less dramatic terms than described in our parable, but nonetheless, just being aware of that kind of frisson of irritation when you aren't properly thanked for something is a good indication that that wasn't a truly generous act. So watch out, be aware, but above all, sit down and taste Christ's meat. Taste his love, his forgiveness, and let those things take root within you and become your truth, the truth you live and share in your daily life. Glory to God whose power exceeds anything we could ask or imagine. Amen.